Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. Good morning, church. It is good to be with you again. Uh, it's good to be back in, the, in a warm land. Uh, do thank you for all your prayers as you prayed for us while we were away. We had a, uh, an eventful time. Uh, the Lord was gracious, and we were able to uh, secure some partners even in some conversations I was able to have uh, for some pro- programs that we want to have over the course of the year, which we'll uh, bring to your attention soon. So we praise the Lord for uh, a useful time. Um, if you're new today, I'm seeing a number of new faces. My name is Pumelelo. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. And it is a good, uh, it is, we're very glad to have you here with us this morning. Won't you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. As we uh, continue our verse-by-verse study in this book, we're going to pick up right where we left off. I think it was the end of November. But just to give you a, a quick recap, if you perhaps weren't here with us, or if the, the, the December activities kind of made you forget... Uh, where we were at in Acts, we began in chapter 1 with a, a, hundred, a group of about 120, um, where the Lord was with them, and then he told them about the mission that they have, which is to take this message of his resurrection to the ends of the entire earth. And then he ascended before their eyes, and then this group of 120 went and waited, and the Holy Spirit came and empowered them for the work that they are to do. He empowered them for this for this witness that they are to do, which is to proclaim that the gospel of Jesus Christ is now available to everyone under the sun. And then from there on in, we saw the Lord, we saw the, the gospel preached by Peter, and many were saved at the beginning. And then there was opposition when there was a, a, a in chapter 3, when we saw that miracle happen of the lame man, the, uh, Peter and John were sent to prison, and, and they, they stood uh, very strongly in their, in their trial and said that very famous line, it is, tell us whether or not it is good for us to obey you, or should we obey God? And of course, they said they will obey God, and they continued uh, to preach the gospel. They prayed for more empowering to be able to preach the gospel. And then, the, the last time we were together in this book, we saw the, the, the sad and very sobering situation at the beginning of chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira where Ananias and Sapphira were playing fast and loose with the truth and treating God like he is not God, and they were killed in the midst of the people. And the effect that we saw of that was that God was, in, was, was instilling in the people's hearts that he is to be treated as God. He is to be feared by his people. And now Luke turns his attention now away from that particular story, story here in verse 12, and he summarizes a bit of the life of the church before he goes in verse 17 to talk about the further persecution, which we will look at next week. So let's look at this section here, this, this bit of an interlude section here from verse 12 to verse 16 of chapter 5. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is God's word. What are we to do with the many fantastic miracles that we find in the Bible? We are, after all, people living in the 21st century here in Johannesburg, Western Johannesburg. What are we to do with these scandalous, these fantastic and brilliant miracles, spectacular miracles that we find in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament? Perhaps we can ask the question another way. What purpose do these miracles serve? Why did they happen? Why don't they happen now? There's two kinds of Christians in front of me this morning. Two kinds. Perhaps three. Or maybe four, but let's be binary for a moment and say there's just two. The one is a Christian who has an agnostic, distant relationship with the supernatural and does not think much about the fact that Christianity is a non-natural, miraculous religion. This person, and this might be you, knows that Christ died and rose again and believes all of his miracles but sees no point in spending much time thinking about what the miracles mean and how they are to affect me today. This person finds no comfort or devotional use from the miracles daily. When they read through the miracles, they just pass over them because they really just don't connect with their hearts. They don't seem to have anything to do with me today. Um, And you might know that you you are this person by how much you skip verses that talk about miracles. Perhaps you, you try to find meaning around the story of the miracles, but not the miracles themselves. They do nothing for you. They don't excite you. They, they don't fill you with a renewed sense of hope as you read them. Perhaps that's you this morning. And then there's the other person, this other fictional character who is in front of me this morning. And this person loves the miracles. You understand? This person lives for the miracles, loves them. All that excites, excites this person in the Bible is the miracles. This person always sees things in the supernatural, always wondering, what is a sign from God? Is that a sign from God? Is that a sign from God? This person loves the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but for this particular person, that once and for all miracle of the resurrection of Christ is not enough. This person wants more miracles and wants miracles all the time and is expecting to see things happen around them in a supernatural way often. And both of these people are going to be confronted by Luke this morning. On the one hand, Luke's description here of the work of the apostles confronts us with the primacy of the miracles in the apostolic office. We cannot just rush over the fact that the apostles were performers of many miracles because Luke won't let us. Luke has told us of the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit, of the healing of the lame man, of the shaking of the house in which they were praying. You saw that in chapter 4. And now he tells us that many, an abundance of differing signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. Luke just won't let this subject go. He wants to impress it into our minds. And on the other hand, Luke also shows us the meaning of the miracles has greater importance. These miracles communicated something. And hence, we must spend our time on what they communicated rather than being overly fascinated with them such that we get despondent when we do not see them in our day. The fact of the matter is this, that the apostles were workers of miracles. That is a fact of the matter. A pastor, that office, a pastor teaches, counsels, gives direction, manages church affa- the church affairs. A deacon serves, leads others in the work of serving of the practical needs of the congregation. But an apostle 
other than giving foundational teaching to the church, most of what he does is miraculous. He does all kinds of miracles. An apostle casts out demons. He heals the sick. He sees visions. He dreams dreams. He talks to Jesus and receives a direct and clear verbal answer as a man talking with a friend. Of course, he also suffers brutally and dies a horrific death like Christ did. I can tell you one thing for free. An apostle does not drive a Mercedes Benz. But that is the work of an apostle. And Luke here mentions a few things that are necessary for us in understanding these miracles in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, if you're wondering about the identity of the apostles, we've already covered this a number of weeks back in the book of Acts. But just to summarize it, there were 12 apostles plus one. That's it. There were 12 of them, and then the one that was added later, which we will meet in chapter, actually we'll meet in chapter 8, and we'll properly meet in chapter 9 in the book of Acts. And then that's it. Those are, those are the apostles, no more, no less. But Luke tells us here three things in verse 12 that are important for us to note about the work of the apostles and the miracles. First, he says that there were many signs and wonders. Did you see this? Many signs, an abundance of signs. <coughs> Excuse me. Second, he says, these signs, these signs were done regularly. That is, all the time. If you see an apostle, you're more likely going to see something supernatural happen. That's the idea. You, you, if you see Peter, or if you see uh, 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 John, something miraculous is going to happen. You should expect it. They were done all the time. And thirdly, and this is excruciatingly important, if you miss this, you might as well have not read the whole thing. Because this is an excruciatingly important piece of information that, all, that usually gets overlooked in the discussion about miracles. Where were these miracles done in verse 12? Where were they done? What's the location that Luke gives us? They were done among the people. They were done among the people in the midst of the watching Jewish country. Among the people there in Jerusalem, the crowds that were there in Jerusalem, they saw them happen in front of them. The crowds did not only include the Christians, but Jews from all over the place. Toss your eyes for for a second to verse 16. Verse 16 says, The people that they were among also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So these people came from all over around Jerusalem, doing what? Bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Just like the pouring of the Spirit and the speaking in the languages happened among the people, just like the lame man healing in chapter 3 that we saw occurred among the people, right outside the door of the temple, in full view of many, these miracles are not the Holy Spirit's private personal health program. These are public displays, fantastic displays of what God is doing. These miracles are signs, they're not a private thing. They're a public thing. They are to be a public display for the watching Jewish public. And therein do we find their meaning. God, through the apostles, was giving confidence in the message of the gospel through the miracles. That's what he was doing. In other words, without these many miracles, the Jews would have had excuse. They would have said to God, but you never showed us that this Jesus really is the Messiah. How are we supposed to know that Jesus really is the Messiah when the Pharisees are teaching that he isn't, and you didn't, give, you didn't show us any sign, you didn't prove to us that he really is the Messiah. So God gave them these signs. Now, one of you might already be wondering, hold on, 
why should God give them signs? Why should God give them miracles to prove to them? Well, that's how God always worked with the Jews. That's how God always worked with the Jews. He confirms, by that I mean, he gives confidence in his message by accompanying it with signs. When a new message arrives to the Jewish people, it is accompanied with a sign that is an authentic, authenticating that the sign, that this message actually is coming from who? From God. When Moses was being called at the burning bush and he said to God, how will they know that you sent me? What did God say? God said, throw down your stick. He threw down his stick. And what happened to the stick? You remember the story? The stick turned into a snake. And then he said, okay, now pick it up again. And he picked it up by the tail and the snake turned back into his stick. And that, that, established, the, that established the norm among the Jews. That the, a message, here's the issue. I have come, Israelites, sent by God to you with a message. But how will you know it's him? Here's a sign from him. It's the same thing that happened with Elijah. When the Israelites had, had been so confused, had gone so deep into Baal worship, that they were so confused as to which direction is which, Elijah challenged the, 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 the Baal prophets and said, let's see which God is the true one. You, you call your God and I'll call on mine and let's see which one is the real one. And of course, if you remember the story, fire came down and burned the bull, a wet bull, full of water in the midst of Israel. <coughs> you see, signs and wonders, that is, the, the bending of natural processes confirms to the Jewish mind who exactly it is that is speaking. Think of these miracles as God's signature in a letter. God is writing a letter to the people and then he, and then he puts a signature in there. I give you confidence that this letter that you have just read comes from me. These signs are a matter of confidence. Confidence in what? Not confidence in the miracles, but confidence in the message. And here, particularly in the book of Acts, it is in the message regarding the death, resurrection, ascension, and forever reign of that man, Jesus Christ. Now, this might raise a question from someone in here this morning. If God used miracles to give confidence in his message to the Jews, why don't we see miracles all the time today? Where are the miracles? We need confidence, don't we? Why don't we? Why is it that a pastor comes or somebody comes and preaches the gospel to you, but they can't produce a miracle, a real miracle at least? They can't produce a miracle that that, that is a seal, that that is a signature from God. Why is that not happening today? Especially if we are preaching the same message. If we're proclaiming the same message as the apostles were, then how, is, how come the same sign, the same confidence is not being given? The answer is that in the wisdom of God, apostolic miracles were an announcement of the new message, not a necessary feature of perpetual proclamation. You understand me? Okay, I'm just using some big words here, but I hope you, I just want, I want you to work with me here. They are an announcement. They, they come at the beginning to make, to make a loud noise, to announce it. And then when the message continues, the miracles are no longer necessary. It's the same thing that happened with Moses. Moses came, boom, lots of miracles between him and Joshua. And then for hundreds of years after, no miracles. And then Elijah comes, and then boom, lots of miracles between him and Elijah and Elisha. And then no, no miracles after, just normal life afterwards. It's a similar kind of thing even here. The, the message arrived with a loud noise proclaiming among the Jewish people that boom, here it is. Here's the new message. But God has not been dealing with the whole world like he was dealing with the Jewish nation. In, in other words, this, this message is, was bringing an announcement of a new era, a, a soft arrival of the new age. 
uh, and the miracles were assigned to the new age, but they were not part and parcel of the message. You understand this? The message itself has nothing to do with miracles. Miracles are never proclaimed. They are not part of the message. They were only an auxiliary support ministry to the message. But they're not a necessary part. When you open the letter, inside the letter, there is nothing about miracles. There is nothing about health, wealth, and prosperity. There is nothing about uh, not having your, your, your lame leg fixed. What you read when you open the letter is that life, true life, is found in Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus appeared to his disciples and Thomas did not believe it because he did not see evidence? Remember that? What did Jesus say when he came back to Thomas? Jesus said this this foundational, important phrase, Blessed is he who has not seen and yet still believes. You with me? By saying that, Our Lord was making it clear that there is a real blessedness to those who have not seen the chief miracle of Christianity and yet still believe in it. There is a chief, there is an abiding blessing to those who believe without seeing the very miracle that is the foundation of the Christian faith. Um, Faith is complete without any signs. Faith is complete without any miracles. Faith, after all, is the evidence of things unseen, the convictions, the conviction, the deep-rooted conviction of things hoped for. In other words, dear friends, this morning we could say it like this. If your faith needs miracles in order to be sustained, your faith is not real faith. If your faith needs miracles in order to be sustained, it is not true faith. It's not real faith. It's something else, but it's not faith. If it requires miracles, if you need to see something, then that's not the true faith that saves. In fact, you have to be careful, and let me gently warn you, my friend. There are many who will lie to you and pay actors in order to fake miracles so that they can fool you into believing that they are special, that they are apostles. When the Bible makes it very clear that there were 12 apostles and one, and that's the end of it. They are going to fool you. If you're always looking for miracles, if you're always looking, there's, there's, there's enough of them out there who will fool you and take your money because... Hey, you, you want miracles, right? Well, let me, I can engineer something that looks like a miracle. And I tell you, do not question it. When you, are, when you come with too many questions, hey, keep quiet. You're not, don't question the man of God. Let me just tell you this for free. If you have to say to people you're a man of God, you probably aren't. Like if you have to, have to go around proclaiming with your chest beating, hey, I'm the man of God. Just watch out for that. Probably aren't. And if you, you, if you are living a life of superstition, always wanting supernatural signs, very quickly, you will get bored with ordinary, day-to-day, mundane, repetitive Christianity of killing sin, loving Christ, loving God, loving your neighbor. Repetitive every day. Loving Christ, loving your neighbor. Loving Christ, loving your neighbor. Very mundane, killing your own sin, dealing with your own self. Just mundane, normal, every day. You're going to get bored with that if you're always superstitious, always looking for something supernatural. But this reality that God gives confidence in the message has a few things for us that we must explore this morning. First, we must be confident in the message that God has given We must be confident in the message that God has given. There are a few things that betray that you are no longer confident in the message. It happens in our hearts when, (coughs) excuse me, because of whatever it is that's happening and whatever the world, whatever's shaking around and whatever trees are shaking, we start looking for something different. And then our hearts start not believing the very simple and straightforward message. The message that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. 
It's not very complicated. It's a very simple message. Even a child can understand this message. But invariably, it happens in our hearts that we look for more sophistication. When, When we think we need a new message to deal with our current issues, just talking about the same old gospel in the same old way is not enough to deal with our current issues. Stop talking about the fruit of the Spirit that results that result from a life that knows the gospel. Stop telling me about love, gentleness, kindness. Oh, I need something else right now. Something more, something more that, that speaks to the issues today specifically. Talk to us about something else. Can't you see that the planet is he- heating up? Talk to me about climate change and, and climate justice. Tell me something new. Give me something new that I can, that I can work with and go and, and, and sink my teeth into. Don't, don't tell me this, this normal, Jesus, Jesus died. Yeah, Jesus died a long time ago. It, it, it's incipient. It happens. And we need to be aware of it. You can't just keep talking about the same gospel. It's, it's the beginning of another year, and you're not giving us keys to unlock the blessings for 2022. Where are the keys? We need the keys to unlock the blessings. Have you not seen how rough the two years have been? No keys. Same thing you said last year. You said this last year and the year before. Nah, man, I need something new. Once you start thinking like this, you've lost confidence in the gospel that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Hmm? We have to watch out for this. We have to watch out. And watch out for people who, who quote scripture and then say, but. Yeah? Watch out for this. Watch out for this even in your own heart. When you, when you quote scripture but say, but. Yeah, the scripture says love, patience, joy, gentleness. But we need to be angry sometimes. You know? We need to go out and fight. Yeah, Jesus said love your enemies. But I mean, he didn't know my enemies. Right? He, he was meaning the Jewish enemies. Once you have a lot of buts. And a lot of sophistication that comes from nowhere, perhaps have lost confidence in the original simple message. That this is not our home. We are on a journey. We are on a journey to the new Jerusalem. This is not our home. And once, you, once, you stro- once you're so focused here and, and trying to make this home in a way that your heart will find <laughs> excuse me, happiness here, you need to be wary. Here's another sign that perhaps you, um, you have now lost confidence in the message. Here's another sign. Your life is now marked by rebellion. Your life is now marked by rebellion against God's word. You don't practically believe the claims of the gospel. So you now live a life of licentiousness. A life of self-righteousness. A life of sexual immorality. Yeah? Once you start living this way, name whatever sin. Once you start justifying it and living in it and allowing it to completely consume you, you have lost confidence in the gospel. Because what what you're saying now, at least by your heart attitude, is that the gospel and its claims on me are not important. You've lost confidence. Here's another sign. Your life is marked by distrust of God in your own personal walk and journey with Him. Perhaps certain things have happened and you don't trust God anymore. Perhaps you've lost someone, lost some people, lost some things, and you just don't see how you can trust God anymore. Perhaps you struggle with sin and you don't see how forgiveness can come. You don't see that there is power in the same gospel to even cleanse your sins away. You've lost confidence in the gospel. You must remember what Paul said in Romans 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This means that all people who place their faith in Christ, all the righteous, 
shall live by faith. They will live by not seeing things work out the way they expect them to. They're not seeing all the puzzle pieces, but they're living by faith, trusting in the work of God, trusting in the fact that the world is run by a benevolent dictator, a benevolent king, a benevolent ruler, the one who has committed to loving his people and honoring his name. Well, let's move on here from that particular section. We need to think about our confidence in in, in the gospel. And I, I would encourage you to, to, to examine where perhaps you might have lost the confidence in the gospel. Perhaps where you might have uh, thought less of the gospel now. Or the less of the, in the simplicity of it. You, you think it needs more. And ask the Lord to help you to walk the narrow path once again. But let's, let's move on now. The second half of verse 12, Luke tells us that they, meaning the church, were all together in, Solom- in Solomon's portico. <clears throat> Solomon's portico <clears throat> is a large uh, porch or a, a large deck on the east side of the Jewish temple where the early Jewish church made their frequent place of gathering. But I want you to notice the very interesting verse 13. Look at verse 13. None of the rest joined them but the people held them in high esteem. It is not immediately clear who the rest are in verse 13 that are said to not even dare to join the church at Solomon's portico. So you see, you have, you have the, 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 the temple, it's huge, and there's sections in it, and this one deck here, Solomon's portico, Solomon's colonnade, it's also called, where Jesus is also frequently taught at. This one deck here is where the church just gathered together, and in the midst of them you have the, an apostle preaching or teaching God's word, or perhaps performing a miracle. And the rest of the Jewish believers are all around, going to the other sections of the temple, not even daring to join this church. So when it says the rest there, uh, the one that makes most sense is that it refers to the other Jewish, the other worshippers in the temple who are coming but making sure to be separate from this group that is here at Solomon's portico. So when they come to the temple, they skirt around them and go to the other sections where they want to go and they do not even dare to join the Christians. In other words, you could read verse 13 this way. The rest of the Jews did not dare join Christians even though they held them in high esteem. They didn't join them, but they held them in high esteem. We're not going to join you, but you guys are amazing. Why? Why would they hold them in high esteem and not join them? This doesn't seem to make sense. Well, let's, let's answer that in pieces. What's the reason they hold them in in high esteem? What is the fundamental reason why the rest of the Jewish worshippers are coming to the temple holding these Christians in high esteem? It's the miracles. It's the miracles. The miracles are confirming that God's infinite power is at work among them. The Christians here are the only show in town. No other group among all the Jewish religious denominations. Remember, at that time, there were different groups among the Jewish worshippers at the temple. You'd have the Sadducees, you'd have the Pharisees, you'd have others, people who fertilized certain rabbis. So groups within the Jewish system were not uncommon, but no other group had the power of God so evident among them. Everybody else was just teaching and talking, but the apostles were healing people. Demons were being cast out. And so the people held them in high esteem because of that. There is something to be said about that, dear saints, this morning. If God is working among us here at Heritage Baptist, it is foolish for us to assume that the world in its entirety is going to hate us. Yeah? Think with me for a moment. 
If God is at work among us, then it is almost presumptuous for us to assume that everybody else is just going to by default hate us. The scriptures often say that you must live in such a way that the unbelievers would be forced to praise your Father in heaven because of your conduct. Let me give you a few verses. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, John 13, verse 35. By this all people will know that you truly are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The more you love one another here, the others are going to see it, hear about it, and say, wow, these people come from the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together, and all are speaking in different languages, Outsiders and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, he, the, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul here is very concerned that how we organize the church service has a thought to the outsiders and unbelievers that enter. 1 Timothy 3 verse 7. Qualifications for a man who is to be a pastor in the church. Paul says this very strongly in in verse 7. After he's listed the others, he says this, verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Church, if you're, going to, if, if you're going to put another man here to be a, your pastor, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The unbelievers in his life must think highly of him. He must be, not just, he must, he must not have any problems with them. No, no, no. They must hold him in high esteem. He must be well thought of. Wow, this is a man who conducts himself in a way that convicts us of God's goodness. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Even unbelievers who are not part of the church, in one sense then, have a say in who becomes your pastor. Because their opinion of him matters to Paul. Yes, of course, dear church, this doesn't mean that we are in a perpetual popularity contest for the eyes of outsiders. This is not what this means. But it does encourage us to have our conduct, both as individuals and as a church, to be in such a way as to consider the eyes of the watching world. If, and this is what we could perhaps say in a personal way. If unbelievers don't like you, that's not a badge of your faithfulness. If unbelievers think ill of you, that doesn't automatically mean that you are a great saint. The question is why? Why do they not like you? Why is it? Is it for righteousness sake, like the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5? Then great, praise the Lord, if they revile you and say all kind of manner of evil things about you because you love the Lord Jesus, wonderful. But is that really the reason? Or is it because you live your life in such a way that you don't care what other people think and so you've allowed yourself to be a contentious, cantankerous discomfort of a human being? Is that what you have become? Or maybe you're a hypocrite and they see right through it. They can't stand your hypocrisy. You're always teaching at them and judging them and then you participate with them in other certain sins. Or you choose and you choose and you, you, you pick and choose which sins to participate in. You buy your, your car driver's license, but then you're gonna berate them for sleeping with their girlfriend. Like so you you you're a hypocrite, and they see right through that. The exhortation to you here is not that you should seek the unbeliever's approval. Rather, you should not wear their disapproval as a gold badge. As a Christian, your desire is to win them over to Christ. That's your, that's your desire, to win them over. You don't just want them to like you, you want them to come to Christ. 
So you're just going to get out of the way. You're going to put aside all your wants and all the things. You're going to get out of the way so that they can come to Christ. That's why Paul says, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. That is why they hold them in high esteem. They hold them in high esteem. It's because God is at work with them. God is producing his power among them. And so they hold them in high esteem. But they do not dare to join them. They don't dare to join them. And this is what is confusing. Again, it is not clear why they do not dare to join them. Why is it that they see that God is working among these Christians, these unbelievers, They are seeing that God is at work among these Christians, and yet they do not dare to join. The way that Luke writes this assumes that we already know the answer to the question. And it is in the phrase that he uses, they do not dare to join them. He didn't say, oh, they just decided not to join. Or they held them in high esteem, but for the love of sin, they couldn't join them. He doesn't say that. He chooses words related to bravery and cowardice. Um, Why? Well, the only clue seems to be a few verses earlier. Do you remember what the effect was of Ananias and Sapphira's miracle deaths? Do you remember that? We saw that last year. Is that everybody was filled with fear. Do you remember this? Everyone both in the church and outside, who heard of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, they were filled with dread. They were filled with fear. And and people, especially these religious people, who could see that the God of Israel is among this group of Christians, they are absolutely terrified of the power of God. Remember, the rest that's not joining them is also worshipping. They are in the temple to worship the God of Israel. These are people who know the law. And and this existence of miracles is scaring them because they know that miracles don't just come and it's all happy clappy. There's sometimes dreadful things that happen just like what happened in Ananias and Sapphira. The message that Jesus Christ is the Messiah has been confirmed among them, but that terrifies them. Now, I want to say this, dear church. Fear is a tool that must never end in itself. Fear is a tool, excuse me, that must never end in itself. Whenever you see in the scriptures men who, who, who see God and are terrified because they think they will die because they've just seen God, they are always rebuked. Moses was afraid. Manoah was afraid. Isaiah wanted to jump out of his skin. Daniel fainted with fear. John on the island of Patmos was scared stiff at the resurrected Messiah. But all of these men, to a man, were reassured that he has revealed himself to make friendship with them. Thank you, brother. I promise you it's not COVID. Just in case you're wondering. Tested negative. And tested negative again. So don't worry about it. It's just some weird American flu. Um, uh, All of these men were reassured that he has revealed himself to make friendship with them. He has not revealed himself to kill them. Terror, that is, dread of God, is a good tool, but it is not the exalted end. The exalted end is trust in God's friendship with us. That's the exalted end. The exalted, yes, be afraid, but the, that fear should lead you to a trust, a security in the, in the covenant relationship that God has initiated by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, you didn't seek him out, he sought you out. He's the one who came, you didn't go anywhere. You couldn't even go, you didn't even want to go, you didn't have any desire to go to him. And yet he's the one who came. So in your fear, just make sure 
that you also realize that you need to move to a trust, to a rest, to a rest in Abraham's bosom. Like John rested on the, on the bosom of Christ as he sat there and he was close to him. That's where you want to go, to be close to your Savior. If perhaps you are here, perhaps you, you are here and have not come to Christ because you're afraid, uh, you know yourself, you know what you've done, uh, you know your sins, let me, let me encourage you to come to Christ. Let me encourage you to come to Him, regardless of what you've done. Children in the room, teenagers, listen to me, hear me clearly. Just because you feel like a hypocrite does not mean that you should not come to Christ. Just because you know that you love sin and are sometimes not interested in spiritual things does not mean that Christ has now given up on you and he won't save you. Come to Christ. Cry out to him. He will save you. He initiated this whole, this whole thing. was initiated by him so that he could save all who call on his name. The final thing I want us to note this morning is the joyous growth of the church as the miracles are performed as we come to a close. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In chapter 1, we started off with a group of 120. Then we went to 3,000 then 5,000, and now we're beyond just talking about numbers. Now we're in the multitudes of people being saved, people being added. The church is growing at a rapid pace as multitudes respond in faith. He says, more than ever, right, more than ever. A phrase that translated here suggesting that the previous rate of growth of the church has now been surpassed. More than ever, people are being added. And you and I are now used to this, right? We're now used to talking about this in a pandemic. You know, there's, there's 2,000 new cases, 5,000 new cases, 20,000 new cases. Well, in this particular wave that Luke is to- telling us about now, it's way more before. The hospitals are full, right? There's way more, way more people being saved than, than it was before. The peak is high. The people that God is moving from death to life is absolutely off the charts and breaking all known previous records. And the fact that the church is growing so much is creating logistical problems. I don't know if you saw that. The growth of the church is always going to cause logistical problems. In chapter 6, we'll see more of these problems. But here, the problem in verse 15 is that there is no more space in Solomon's portico for all the sick people. So then they proceed, because there's so many people being saved and the group is growing so much, they now proceed to put people out on the streets and lay them on cots and mats. And now, they, now they, they're not even now going to get Peter's attention. They're just hoping that his shadow will pass by and some of that power will fall on them and they'll be healed. Because it's just the church is growing so much that to get Peter or Paul, Peter or John or any of the other apostles' attention is getting harder and harder. Uh, this is the first church building problem ever recorded in the New Testament. Uh, there's so many of them that people, people now have to be laid outside. And of course you'll remember something similar happening to the Lord Jesus. And that's what Luke is doing here. Luke is trying to connect with us and remind us that these men are following in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you remember when the Lord Jesus was passing by and, and there were so many people around him that this woman went and tried to just touch the hem of his garment, just the edge of his garment, trusting that she can be healed. Well, that's the same thing that's happening here. It's not just the hem of his garment, it's a shadow. If he can just pass by, just breathe the same oxygen as I'm breathing and I'll be healed. Peter follows in the Lord's footsteps. All of this, all of this sense, we're told all of this for one reason. To give us confidence in the message. To give us a robust trust in the message of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ preached it and his apostles preached it and his apostles were, 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 were the message that they were preaching, that we're preaching today was confirmed in the, by the same power in the same way 
that Christ did. You, dear unbeliever, if you're here this morning, if you consider yourself not a Christian, let me tell you that the message of the miracles to you is this, that you can be confident that just like the, like the apostles, by the power of God, are healing people of their sicknesses in Jesus' name, you can be healed of your sins as well by that same name. The very same name that is healing people is the very same name that is able to change you entirely. That if you were to trust in Him and call to Him, call His name, you will be saved. And for us, dear church, this is, what it, this is what it means. About two decades or so ago, there was a famous cartoon on repeat on SABC3 called Pinky and the Brain. And Pinky always asked the brain, what are we going to do today, brain? And brain's answer was always exactly the same every time. We're going to do the same thing we do every day, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Well, it's the same thing for us, church. What are we going to do this year? We're going to preach the same gospel, pray for the same fruit, pray for sanctification in the same way in our lives until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Because we can trust this message, because this message is so trustworthy, we don't need to change our plans. We don't need to adjust the, the lockdown levels restrictions. Everything is going to continue the same way for us. We are always going to be Trusting in the same message, no need for adjustment. Let me encourage you, church. Because we believe that there's this same gospel, we should have every confidence that it is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the South African among us. Let's pray. <coughs> well, Father... We do trust you. We do thank you for the confidence that you give. We do thank you for your message and the gospel. That we can trust it that while there's so much change in our lives, new new regulations, new things changing every week, there's one thing that stays the same that we can always entirely trust in. That is the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his rule forever. And now, Lord Jesus, we pray that even this week as we seek again to do what we asked you to give us to do last week, that is to love you, to love your people, to fight our sin, uh, to live in light of the world that is to come. How we ask that you give us grace again, encourage us once again, strengthen us again to do what you've called us to this week. And we pray for ourselves this year, that, Lord, that we may be found faithful that our hearts might not be found to wander to the left or to the right, but we might always be found trusting in this message. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.